It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So I'm in the middle of a series uh, called Becoming Brave. This is part five, and it's called Getting Swagger Ready. So each of these episodes so far, if you've joined us up to this point, you know how significant, how pithy, how important these meditations are, because right now in a time like uh, this in which we're living, uh, there's a great instability and that destabilizing factor to the Christian is important uh, for us to recognize because that's the enemy's game. We as believers are meant to reveal the invisible kingdom. Uh, And so in the way we act, in the way we react, uh, it's very critical because we are supposed to show the behavior of heaven. Well, what's heaven like? It's rock-like. Jesus Christ is rock. His word is rock. And when we build our lives upon it, when winds and rains beat against us, we will not be moved. So therefore, we are supposed to be solid. And that that idea of being solid is the idea of being brave. And so this idea of becoming brave is critical for us right now. You know, when, when times are easy, you don't oftentimes as a believer think about these types of things. But when things begin to get unsteady, it is very critical that we recall and remember and come back to the Word of God to remember what our God has given us. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Well, what does that include? Every circumstance we could possibly ever face, we have everything we need for. That is actually a very exciting thought. So getting swagger ready. Uh, throughout the years, I've, I've liked to use the word swagger. It's, it has a negative connotation. I, I get that. But I, I sort of like the idea of a swagger uh, enunciating what takes place inside of us as believers when we really catch it, when we understand the authority of Jesus Christ, when we understand the triumph of the cross, and we recognize that we've transferred from that kingdom and we're no longer under the dominion of the devil, but we are now under the lordship of Jesus Christ and under his care. And I, that just gets you excited. I mean, if you've ever done the math on the kingdom, you recognize that, you know, Lucifer, uh, the devil snuck away with one third of the angelic host, which, you know, can make us mad and a little upset. It's like, what's he doing taking a third of them? However, what remains? Two thirds. That's double, which means God has double the angelic host and he's God. Okay, so no matter how you look at this, you have to get excited when you when you realize you're on the side of the living God, when you have entered into a redemption, when you have entered into that recovery through the cross of that relationship with him, that that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, which is why it's called good news. But this is supposed to work in and through us unto the point of steadying our souls and causing us to rise up with a new strength. And that's why I'm calling it a swagger. It's a strength. It's like, whoa, you know, I'm no longer under the thumb of the devil and you no longer take his guff. You no longer play his games. And that's when it gets really exciting in the Christian life. So I call this, uh, if you're seeing the video of this on the screen, it says the swagger of the freshly anointed, young David and his sheep. You see, David has been anointed. A ram's horn of oil has been poured over his head by the prophet Samuel. And even if his dad and his brothers didn't quite get what was going on, which is the only way you can really interpret the scene, because he ends up getting stuck right back with the sheep, even though he's the king of Israel. Now, I mean, he was rightfully anointed by the prophet. Why is he tending to sheep again? 
And so whether or not they really gripped it or understood it, David seemed to know that something took place and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Very exciting moment. And yet what happens when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David? I like to say that he got a swagger. And so when the lion comes into, you know, uh, his territory and grabs one of his sheep, what does David do? He runs after him. Well, that's not a very wise thing to do. That's a lion, David. And he's a hungry lion. I mean, every mom knows to give that piece of advice to their children. When a dog is eating, don't mess with them. Okay, well, how about when a lion is eating, right? Or a bear. And that is exactly when David is going to do his running and he's going to break the jaw of the lion and take back his sheep. He's going to do the same with the bear. Ultimately, he's going to do the same with Goliath. You see, it's a training period. He's learning something. He's learning to exercise the newfound authority that he has, which is why I think the word swagger sort of works, even though, yes, it has that negative connotation. We all sort of need to get it. We need to understand, not with an arrogance, an earthly arrogance, but with a confidence of the heavenly realms that we are the twice born of Jehovah, that we rest beneath the shadow of the Almighty. And though a thousand would fall at our side and 10,000 at our right hand, it will not come near us. You see, we have to get it. And that's a very, very significant thing to take place inside of us. So this is obviously an important discussion then, getting back the ancient swagger. Obviously, men and women throughout history have had this, but we seem to be missing it today. I don't know if you just sort of stare at the church today. It seems rather weak it seems rather vulnerable, and it doesn't seem to know its position. It doesn't seem to remember and recall the fact that Jesus won at the cross, that he rose again on the third day, that he's seated at the right hand of majesty in the heavenly realms, and that all things are beneath his feet, and that he possesses the name above every other name, and that we have been entrusted with that name. We have been entrusted with his very position. As it says in Ephesians, we are seated with him in heavenly places. We have a position in Christ because of our faith in Christ to actually wield strength in this earth, to wield power, to wield confidence in this earth, to see this earth bend its knee to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some of us don't quite know what to do with that, right? That just sounds like a bunch of truth that doesn't seem very applicable. And yet it's critical that we begin to awaken to how this life is supposed to work. Not just what we see around us, but what does the ancient Christian life look like? What is it supposed to look like today? These are very important questions that I, for one, really am interested in us as the church chewing on. So my subtitle for this is A Quick Peek at Acts Chapter 5. And this is a really quick peek. I'm not even going to read through the whole chapter. I'm just going to give some highlights because Acts Chapter 5 is a good answer to what the ancient church has always looked like. Okay, this is how it started. This is whenever there's a revival in the church of Jesus Christ, this is what it begins to do afresh. And it is a great movement of grace. And this is what all of us sort of salivate for. We just don't quite know what it looks like in the year 2022. Uh, and so I, I don't want you to feel like you're just all alone and then we're all misfitted out there because of this. When you haven't seen it, when you've never seen it demonstrated, you see, the disciples at least had one advantage on us. They had multiple, but at least one that is clear, and that is that they got to watch the life of Jesus. They got to witness not just his death and his burial, but his resurrection. They got to walk with him and talk with him even after he had risen from the dead. And they got to see him ascend into the heavenlies. Well, you know what? That, that does 
pass along a certain degree of confidence that uh, we have to gain in a different way. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we can have eyes to see the same things, but when you have never seen it modeled in your generation, we've never seen this form of Christianity, you know what? It can be hard to step out and say, but I trust that God wants to do it in and through me. That's what we're supposed to do, but it is a challenge. Many of us are not ready to be the David in the situation. We sort of want a David to step up against Goliath, and then we'll follow David to root the Philistines. However, what God is looking for in this generation are Davids that are willing to look at Goliath and say, is there not a cause? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare defy the armies of the living God? Uh, those are good questions. You see, we live in a generation which is in desperate need of bravery, which is in desperate need of men and women that, in a sense, smirk at the enemy's boasts. So let's go through Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 starts with something that in my next installment in this series I'm going to unpack a little more, and that's the Ananias and Sapphira story. Which is funny because most people would say, "What? We're talking about bravery. That, that's like heart melting. I mean, oh, how, how? Why would we need to bring up that? It's actually important to see that out of this story is going to flow a bold church. In other words, don't overlook what is taking place here because, in a sense, this needs to take place in all of our hearts and minds. So, Ananias is fire. I'm not going into the story, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession. That's more of a hint. Hint. This is the start of a story of you know." This is going to awaken and stir the church. The fear of God is going to come upon the church and awaken them at a whole nother level because of what is going to happen with that certain man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. So in verse 511, I have a subtitle that says, Great fear comes upon the church. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They had lied to the Holy Spirit. And the, the cleanliness and the purity of, of the church, of what the Holy Spirit desired, was a very, very serious thing. And it stirred and awakened the church. This is all part of what I would say is the recipe for what we too are needing in our soul. We may not uh, desire to walk through uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and yet to really gain what is in the rest of Acts chapter 5, that's necessary territory. So uh, I'm in Acts chapter 5, verse 12 here. Big and powerful things are happening in the culture. You see, the church is being stirred. It's being awakened. It's being purified. It's being revived. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, these are summary points, but something big is happening. The church is not hiding. The church is not just on its haunches. This, the church is in an offensive position. It seems to remember that it is in a position of power and authority. Believers increasingly added. So this is verse 14 in chapter 5. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And I think what we feel, especially here in the American church, uh, and I could say North American because I think uh, Canada can feel it right along with us, that is that we are not increasing and in adding to our the, the multitude daily. In fact, to even call it a multitude seems like an exaggeration in the first place. We feel thin. In fact, we feel more falling away from Christianity than coming into it. What's going on? This is the ancient church. Where's the ancient swagger? And then in verse 16, sick or healed, all of them. 
Now, this can make some of us a little uncomfortable. Those of you that lean a little more conservative, you know, get a little of the EBGBs when we start talking about healing and things like that. And I, I just don't think we should. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I want the Spirit of God to do in this generation precisely what He must to win the affections and the attentions of a lost world. And if that's healings, praise God. I don't need personally someone to be healed for me to believe what the scriptures say. I don't. However, for whatever reason, in the early church, the signs and wonders were there. Now, some churches go after signs and wonders as their chief operation. And I would prefer to have love uh, be our chief operation as the church. And I would love us to bend before the word of God and not just go after big and powerful things, but make sure God is working in the micro dimensions of our life. But when a church is allowing God to work in the micro dimensions through the Ananias and Sapphira sort of thing, and the fear of God comes upon us, and we step out in boldness to proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ in a dying world, well, I want us to be open to verse 16 here. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. Listen to this. And they were all healed. <laughs> okay, whoa, that's, uh, that's quite extraordinary. Now we're on verses 18 through 20 in chapter 5. Aggressive hostility it just comes with the territory. You step out boldly for Jesus, and guess what happens? There's hostility in return. That's just a guarantee. It comes with the package, and you shouldn't be shocked by it. In fact, you should smirk at it. This is just how it works. If you're really doing something for Christ, the devil's going to notice, and he's going to have a counterattack. That should be a compliment, not something to complain about. Because I have aggressive hostility profound victory. You see, with that hostility, it actually strengthens us as believers, and the victory is even greater. So verses 18 through 20, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So this is that hostility. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people of all the words of this life. You see, what we have is we have hostility, and yet, these people that are being thrown into prison, the, the scriptures don't spend a lot of time in talking about how miserable they were. It just talks about the fact that in this process of bringing the glory of Jesus Christ to their culture, yeah, they faced challenges, but guess what? God overcame those challenges and actually did wonders in and through those challenges. He opens prison doors. This is verse 27 in chapter 5. They're again brought before that council. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, and if you guys remember the story, it's like, hey, what are you speaking in the name of Jesus for? We strictly pro, uh, forbade you to do that. And they're like, hey, guys, you need to realize, we said this before, we'll say it again. It's better that we obey God than you. And that's a big statement. I mean, this is the entire system of the day. This is the reigning power of the day, and they're snubbing their nose at it to follow Jesus. This is a boldness that I think we would do good to gain back. Gamaliel's warning. Now, what I love about this, see, what's interesting is even just the flow in the book of Acts, at the very end of uh, chapter four, right before all of this, we have the building being shaken by the Holy Spirit and the spirit of boldness coming upon the saints. And so now we're seeing that boldness unfold. Gamaliel's warning, which I love, verse 39, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. No, he's giving counsel. He may not believe that what the apostles are doing is from God, but he's making a great statement here. If what the apostles were doing is of God, then it could not be overthrown. And lest they be found fighting against God, 
Now, what if we were to adopt that in our generation and recognize what if we were to do something in agreement with God? Do you know the enemy, the culture, could not overthrow it lest they be found to be fighting directly against God? Isn't that just a fun thought? So, and then verse 42, the pattern of the early church. Listen to this. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Oh, Lord, bring back such a pattern to us, the body of Christ today. May Acts chapter 5 live within us. May it come to life. May it be visible. And so this next generation actually does have a pattern. And they can look at our lives and say, so that's what it looks like when God once again rules within his church and when the church is in stride with the Holy Spirit, when the church has the ancient swagger. So on the screen, I have a slide that says, we are not the cowards. We are not supposed to be the ones trembling. Is he actually technically the enemy is the one who's supposed to be trembling? He's the one that's defeated. He's the one that's scrapping for his life. He's the one that in the last days, whose, whose days are they the last of? It's the enemy. It's not us. It's a new beginning for us. So the end times, the last days, these words need to be reappropriated and, and repurposed because it's not the end of us. I mean, we, are, we, we can't even die again, if you want to say it that way. We may go to sleep, but we're living forever in Jesus Christ. Even though these mortal husks, these mortal bodies may uh, pass away, we live in Christ forever and always. In other words, we are not the ones that are supposed to cower. We are not the ones that are supposed to be intimidated. The world around us should recognize, whoa, they're the twice born. They're the ones that have been with Jesus. They're the ones that have the power of the Holy Spirit. They're the ones that have double the angelic host. They're the ones that serve the living God who is triumphant, who created all things, and all things are beneath his feet. <clears throat> so a great picture of this is uh, the Dutch woman, she's known as Corey Tenboom. We talk about Corey Tenboom a lot. We uh, we're all big fans of Corey Tenboom around here. But she, in World War II, when the uh, the Nazis were coming into Holland and were bringing persecution to the Jewish people, as a Christian, she had to do something. And so I have four different points here of just that have stood out in her life. Uh, that I'd just like to mention, just as a sampling of this, because it's so stirring. So she was ready to respond, she was ready to act, and she remembered that she had something powerful. She was a believer, and she knew that as she did that which the Spirit of God was leading her to do, that God would back her with all the power of heaven. So when the Jews in Holland were being killed, what did she do? She was willing to bring them even into her own house and risk her life. And it did end up costing her greatly because she did these things. But how many lives she spared because of this is amazing. And so as a result, her willingness to stand in the gap and do a very bold and brave thing, which was self-sacrificing. Her dad ends up dying because of this. Her sister ends up dying because of this. Many of her other family members died because of their willingness, not just her willingness, but their willingness to stand on behalf of the persecuted, the, the weak and the vulnerable. Also, the next one, when the babies were sentenced to death. So what do we do when we find out that 100 babies that are Jewish are sentenced to be executed uh, are, uh, the next day? That's, that's what's going to happen. What do we do? 
Well, because of their arrangements with uh, different uh, Germans that had come to them and said, we want to do what is right. Uh, we don't want to fight with the Nazis. They had been able to help them escape and also get their uniforms. And so a hundred, I don't know how many boys, I was going to say a hundred, but it was a hundred babies. There was a whole troop of, of young boys uh, led by, I think it was her nephew, uh, Peter. And they all dressed up in these uniforms and went and stole these babies before they were executed. They were dressed up as Nazi soldiers and they took these babies. And then the Church of Jesus Christ took these babies in. It's a pretty extraordinary story, right? But are we doing that? Like, what is our response? And that's, that's what I want to be freshly touched by. There are atrocities taking place in our world today. And I feel like we're a few steps removed from Corey Ten Boom's uh, responses to these things. Do we have the readiness? Do we have the swagger to run after the lion, to run after the bear, to remember our heritage, to remember that we are the twice born of Jehovah, to remember that we rest beneath the shadow of the Almighty, to remember that our Lord sits enthroned on high and all things are beneath his feet, to remember that we have been given all things for life and godliness. So when they were in a concentration camp, the third point I have here is when they're in the concentration camp and facing the judge. So she's brought before a judge who's asking her questions and basically uh, trying to figure out where the guilt is. And, and so what does she do uh, in this? But she takes the opportunity to share Jesus with the judge. This is a man who hates God, has no interest in God, and so she feels compelled to share Jesus. And then her, even her sister Betsy is going to have such a massive impact upon this because both of them, even they're brought in separately to talk with this man, all they care about is his soul. They're not trying to figure out a way to survive. They're in Ravensbrück concentration camp where hundreds of thousands of women were exterminated, and yet they're not concerned about that. They're concerned with the soul of this man. Then as after the years pass, she's, she's freed from the concentration camp. Betsy, her sister, died in the concentration camp. But now she's been given a ministry and people from all over the world are interested in hearing her speak about what she went through and how God was faithful. In a sense, to hear about the swagger that she had, to hear about her responses to these dire situations, because in every circumstances, we as Christians need to remember what it looks like. And here we have an example. So in this one, this is a really fun story. When in the Soviet Union, she was visiting to influence the church, to speak to the church, but the church was under heavy surveillance. It was an underground church system, if you will. And so she's in this country where she's being constantly watched and surveilled, and everything is being recorded. Like she was in a hotel situation where she knew that there were recording devices, and uh, she... I don't know how you would feel if you were in the Soviet Union when you were being watched, every movement you were making was being watched, and that everything you would speak out loud in your hotel would be recorded. I mean, that's sort of difficult. I mean, how are you going to share Jesus effectively in a situation like that? So what does she do? Corey gets excited about this, and she's realized, wait a minute, it's, it's going to be taped, everything's going to be taped, and then it's going to be sent to all the higher-ups to be reviewed. So in her mind, she looks at this as a golden opportunity. So what does she do? She starts preaching in her hotel room so that it could be captured for all of these KGB uh, officers to hear it and then to pass it up to their higher uh, ups so that they could hear it. And if they're concerned, they're concerned, but they could also have an opportunity to hear the gospel. <laughs> That's something that I want to bottle and distribute to the entire church. It's like, how do we get that in us? 
I want us to get into that hotel room and to find out that we're being surveilled, watched, and monitored, and to look at that as the ultimate opportunity. She's not concerned about her own skin. She's concerned about the souls of the lost and dying. What is the boldness that we have for? That's exactly what it's for. It's to be spent. God wants to make us bold and brave for the hour in which we live so that we can effectively deliver the goods of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So at the very beginning, the first, well, actually, I think it was the second episode in the series, I went through what I was calling the 10 facts that make a believer brave. Now I'm rebuilding that list as we go because we're on you know, episode four here. Uh, or it's not episode four, but I'm on the fourth point, the fourth promise. Number one, God promises to make you inwardly doom-proof. Number two, God promises to give you a PhD in good news. Most people have a PhD in bad news, but God promises to give you a PhD in good news. God promises to enable you to take any hit the enemy can dish out. And God promises to make you spiritually unstoppable. And that's what today's is. Don't you like that? God wants to give you everything you need so that you are not the one that cowers, but that you're the one that preaches in your hotel room, even though you're being monitored and surveilled. Boy, Lord Jesus, give us that. Guys, I hope you have a great day. May God bless you. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.